God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see this morning. We pray that your spirit would illuminate us. God, I pray, um, Lord, for an openness this morning that your word would do exactly what it promises to do, or that you would convict and encourage and edify. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I recently read an article titled, uh, Living a Lie. We deceive ourselves to better deceive others. And in it, it highlights the danger of self-deception. It talks about how frequently people distort reality uh, in order to make themselves appear better and thus deceive others. In it, it's said that people mislead themselves all day long, that we tell ourselves that we're smarter and better looking than our friends, that our political party can do no wrong, that we're too busy to help a colleague. We dupe ourselves in order to deceive others. The article suggests various ways that we deceive ourselves, that we think that we uh, eat healthier than what's actually true. I'm guilty of that. That we are um, safer drivers than what's actually true. And it goes on and on. But one of the ways this article suggests that we deceive ourselves the most is through self-enhancement. It says that we tend to overestimate our good qualities because it makes us feel good. But feeling good on its own has no bearing on survival or reproduction. That we distort reality because we love ourselves more than we love the truth. That if you need to convince somebody of something, if your career or social success depends on persuasion, then the first person who needs to be convinced is yourself. This article was really fascinating. And even though it didn't go here, I think that we can apply this to our lives spiritually. I think that as Christians, we can fall into a type of spiritual self-deception where we think that we are a lot more spiritual mature than what we actually are. Spiritual self-deception can kind of fool ourselves into thinking that just because we've been a Christian for X number of years, that that automatically means that we're a mature or a good Christian. Spiritual self-deception convinces us that if I just read a verse of the Bible, that that automatically means that I've been changed by the Bible. Spiritual self-deception can convince us that if I go to a particular church or if I hang out with a particular group of people, that that automatically makes me a wise and mature Christian. So I think at the root of it, underneath spiritual self-deception is confusing religious activity with spiritual maturity. It, It confuses religious familiarity with spiritual transformation, and it is dangerous. And I think that's exactly why the Apostle Paul begins our passage in verse 18 with this strong warning by saying, let no one deceive himself. Okay, this is a warning against spiritual self-deception. I think he lays this down because it, it provides all kinds of dangers to us. I think one of the biggest dangers to spiritual self-deception is being blind to it. Like, like you don't know that you are spiritually self-deceived. And so the Apostle Paul is going to help us this morning by, I think, providing three signs of spiritual self-deception that he noticed in the Corinthians, and then I think can help challenge us here this morning. 
So three signs uh, to spiritual self-deception. Here's the first one in verses 18 through 20 is when you self-evaluate through worldly wisdom. Self-evaluate through worldly uh, wisdom. Verses 18 through 23 in our passage really uh, refer back to chapter 1, verses 18 uh, through chapter 2, verse 16, where Paul compares and contrasts the wisdom of this world with the foolishness of this world. If, if you remember uh, several weeks ago, the Apostle Paul holds up how the world thinks that they are wise, and yet they do not accept the wisdom of God that's been demonstrated in the cross of Christ. Well, Paul is, is pretty much doing much of the same thing here in these last few verses in chapter 3. Notice in verse 18, he says, Let no one deceive himself, If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. I want to point out here that Paul is concerned that some in this church at Corinth have fallen into self-deception because of the way that they were evaluating themselves, the way that they were thinking about themselves, that some thought that they were wise Some thought they were mature. Some thought that they were spiritually advanced, but it was based on the wisdom of this age and not the wisdom of God. See, they were measuring themselves. They were thinking that they were wise, not according to what the Bible has to say, but according to the world's standards. So what's the answer to this? What does Paul say? We'll look at the last part of verse 18. He says, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Now you read that and you think that's backwards. Like, like why would I want to become a fool if, if my goal is to become wise? Well, here we see within God's kingdom, the way to become wise and the standard of wisdom is inverted compared to the world. It's backwards. You can see that even in verse 19. It says, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. Meaning in God's sight, the wisdom of this world is foolishness. Okay, Paul said basically the same thing in chapter one, just in reverse, that the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. You see how backwards that is from the world's perspective. Now, Paul backs this up in verses 19 and 20 by quoting two Old Testament passages from Job chapter five, verse 13, and Psalm 94, verse 11, to show God's attitude towards those who think that they're wise, again, according to the world, that their thoughts are futile. Okay, I don't want you to miss this this morning, just how inverted and how really backwards it seems uh, that wisdom and maturity is within God's kingdom. That spiritual wisdom says for us to focus on the heart, but worldly wisdom says focus on your appearance, focus on your accomplishments. Right, spiritual wisdom says if you want to find your life, you are to lose it. Right? But worldly wisdom says you need to live your best life now. See, it's inverted. And we see this all throughout God's kingdom, not just related to wisdom and foolishness, but we see this, for example, as it relates to power. Right? The, the world would say that the pathway to become strong and powerful is through becoming self-sufficient and, and, and autonomous, right? But that's not 
uh, the way to power according to God's kingdom. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, God says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul then says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, it's inverted. Give you another example of greatness, right? The world says to become great is to exalt yourself. And yet Mark 9, 35 says, as Jesus sits down with the 12, he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last and a servant of all. I'm pointing these out to you because understanding this directly impacts the way that you evaluate your maturity level, the way that you think about yourself spiritually. And God's wisdom, God's maturity in his kingdom seems backwards. That's why the world considers it foolishness. And so Paul says that the one who has become deceived is the one who has taken on the standards and the values and the priorities of this world and is evaluating himself through that lens. Now, I want to ask you this morning, just to kind of apply this, what areas of your life have you been evaluating yourself through worldly standards and values? Right? When you look at verse 18... And you could say, if anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, but let's, let's maybe change this just to apply it to different areas of our lives. What if we said, if anyone thinks that he is a good spouse, according to this age, or a good employee, according to this age, or a good friend, or a good parent of this age, let him become a fool. See, let's apply this to different areas, not just to wisdom, but let's evaluate ourselves as far as what it means to be a good spouse, a good friend, a good parent, according to what the Bible says, not according to the worldly standards. Let's take parenting, for example. If you're trying to evaluate yourself of being a good parent, what does the world say? The world says that if you provide for your child the best vacations, the best clothes, if you help them have the best GPA, get into the best colleges, help them to be most popular and well-liked, if you have all of that, mom and dad, you are a successful parent. That's what the world would say. And none of those things are bad in and of themselves. But what does the Bible say about your role as a mom and dad in being successful? Right, Proverbs 22, verse 6 says, to train up your child in the way that he should go. Instruct them, shepherd their heart, expose them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to being a successful parent. Proverbs 29, 17 says to discipline your son and he will give you rest. I know that's not a popular metric according to the worldly standards of a, of a successful parent to correct your child But this is what the Bible says as far as evaluating yourself of being a good and a faithful parent. And I think we need to apply this inversion of God's wisdom, not just to parenting, not just to wisdom and and foolishness, but to every area of our lives. What does the Bible have to say about being successful in all these areas? I was reminded of a, of a quote by a pastor I once heard who said that much of my learning to follow Jesus is unlearning to follow myself. 
I would actually add on to that. I would say that much as my learning to follow Jesus is unlearning to follow the world, right? We get impacted by these values from the world and we're bombarded every single day and we need to be on guard that we are not being deceived into using their standards in evaluating ourselves. Do not be deceived. So that's the first sign, how you evaluate yourself. But secondly, I think in verses 21 through 23, Paul provides another sign about the source of your boasting. You can see this clearly in verse 21. The second command of this passage starts very similarly to the first one. Let no one, and Paul says in verse 21, let no one boast in men. Now, Paul has already addressed their boasting in chapter 1, verses 29 and, 30, and 31, where he exhorted them, hey, if you're going to boast, uh, make sure you're boasting in the Lord. Make sure that he is the source of your boasting. Now, Paul's use of boasting here uh, doesn't just refer to, to bragging about something, right? That, that's how we tend to think about it. Paul is using this word boast uh, to mean to put your hope in something, that when you boast in something, you're declaring that this object or whatever it is, is providing meaning and satisfaction and purpose for you. So to boast in something, the way Paul's using it here, is to declare trust in something, that you're expressing reliance on something. Let me give you kind of a silly uh, example. Let's just say this morning I stood up before you and I said, um, church, this morning I had the very best donut. It was the best donut in my life, right? It was the donut from uh, Rise and Roll, that cinnamon caramel glaze on top. It was unbelievable. I took that, put it in the microwave for six seconds and popped it in my mouth and it was unbelievable, okay? If I stood up here and told you that, you would conclude, number one, that was kind of weird. My pastor really likes donuts. But secondly, that's a type of boasting, right? I am declaring something about this donut that's going to give me something. It's going to provide me something. For me to say to you, I can't wait to have another donut is me expressing hope in that donut. Now, related to food, that might be okay, uh, although that could be probably argued. But for Paul here, he is saying when it comes to the object of your hope and the foundation of your faith, it is foolish to boast in anything besides Jesus Christ. It is foolish to boast in men. And the reason for this is in verse 21. He says, for all things are yours. And then he lists the very same men that they were boasting in, Apollos and Peter. And he adds other things like world and life and death, the present and the future. And he says, look, you are Christ. You belong to Jesus and all these things belong to you. Now, what does Paul mean by this? Paul is pointing out another way that you can discern self-deception because there were people in this church at Corinth who believed it was wise to latch themselves on to human leaders and to build the foundation of their faith upon them instead of Jesus Christ. They were hoping in them, which is why they were boasting in them. They thought that the firmest foundation was these men. And Paul says, don't boast in them. Do not be deceived by that line of, of reasoning. 
And I think this exhortation not to boast in men, I think it raises the question for us this morning of what are you placing your hope in today? What are, what are you boasting in with your life? Where is your hope today? And I don't mean where's your hope for eternity because I would say most of us would say it's in Jesus, right? Our hope is in him for heaven. But, but what I'm saying this morning is where is your daily hope? What do you turn to to kind of get you through the day, right? What's your functional hope for, for Monday morning tomorrow to get you through the week, right? And I think for, for some of us, we might be challenged by this when we say, oh yeah, let no one boast in men. I don't boast in men. But are you boasting in other things by placing your hope in them? Could it be that you're boasting in a new relationship right now to kind of get you through life? Could you be boasting in uh, and maybe a, a new promotion or maybe a raise at work and you're, you're putting your hope in that? Are you putting your hope in maybe a, a new season of life where maybe the current or the, or the past season of life was really hard and you're just thinking, man, if I can just get to a new season of life, things will be okay. Are you putting your hope in, in the vaccine? Thinking, man, yes, we can get back to, to life as normal. And this is where my hope is found. Or is your hope in Jesus Christ? See, as people of God, our hope has never been in all of these other things. As the people of God, our hope has always been and will always be in our Savior, whose name is Jesus Christ, whose garments are stained with blood because he went to the cross on your behalf. He defeated our enemy. He conquered the grave. He rose victoriously, and he sits at the right hand of the Father with all power, all authority, who is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. That's where our hope is to be found. That's where we are to boast. It is in Jesus Christ, not in these other things. So Paul is saying here, do not be deceived thinking I am of Paul or I am of Cephas. That's a misplaced hope. Say, I am of Christ. I belong to him. And he says, all things belong to you, meaning you have every spiritual resource, every spiritual blessing is yours because you are in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1 reiterates this where Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So I hope you have that word underlined, that word every every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul is declaring that we have an identity-forming foundation, which is Jesus Christ. Some may forget the foundation. Some may take it for granted. Some may ignore it or disregard it, but the truth remains the same. Jesus is our sure foundation upon our life and our church. Do not be deceived. Well, this takes us to our final sign, the third sign, I think, of self-deception that Paul points out. This time we're moving into chapter four in these first five verses, and that is um, when you move towards self-appointing yourself to be the judge of others. 
Now, we can see that this passage is linked together with the end of chapter 3, because in some translations, verse 1, like the NASB says, let a man regard us in this manner. All right, let a man. That follows the same type of of formula that Paul's been using uh, with verse 18 and verse 21. It says, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. All right, Paul's now transitioning and he's beginning to address the manner in which some of the Corinthians were regarding him. They they were judging him. They were thinking about Paul a certain way and it wasn't positive. And we can conclude a few things about how the Corinthians were passing judgment towards Paul just in the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians. Chapter one, verse 17, they were passing judgment because Paul's preaching was not done with eloquence of this world. Or chapter two, verse three, Paul appeared weak before them. Chapter three, verse two, Paul's preaching was with milk and not solid food. So they were kind of passing judgment upon him and his ministry. And Paul's response essentially in these verses, especially verse five, is don't judge me prematurely. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, some love to use this passage, specifically verse five, and kind of rip it out of context and say, see, we're not supposed to judge one another, right? They'll even use Jesus's words in Matthew seven. They'll rip that out of context where Jesus says, do not judge so that you will not be judged as well, right? And they'll say, hey, we're just supposed to love each other. We're not supposed to pass judgment. We're not supposed to hold each other accountable. And yet, Paul will say in the very next chapter, chapter five of 1 Corinthians verse 12, are you not to judge those inside the church? Expel the wicked person from among you. So is is Paul contradicting himself here? Are we supposed to judge each other? Are we not supposed to judge each other? Well, yes, we are to hold one another accountable, but we are to hold one another accountable a certain way. And the Corinthians here, the problem with their judgment towards the Apostle Paul was twofold. First, the first problem with their judgment was the very criteria that they used to judge Paul wasn't according to God's standards and values. It was from the world's viewpoint, right? And we've already addressed some of the ways that they did that. But their judgment was also premature, Verse five, Paul says, do not pronounce judgment before the time. So the Corinthians, they were making these snap judgments before collecting all of the relevant information. It was not only premature, it was also a type of of prideful judgment that they acted as if they knew everything going on in Paul's life and in Paul's heart. You can see that in verse five where Paul says, God is the true judge because he brings to light things now hidden He will disclose the purposes of the heart. See, the Corinthians were not evaluating Paul based on the Bible, but based on worldly standards. That's that's their first issue. But secondly, their second issue with judging Paul was their authority was self-appointed. No one, including God himself, appointed the Corinthians to pass judgment on an apostle, on the apostle Paul. They assumed this role and deceived themselves thinking that they were right, that they were wise in being the judge 
over the Apostle Paul himself. But notice the way that Paul instructs the Corinthians here. I love this. Paul not only corrects their inappropriate judgment, but he helps them understand how to see their role within the church. That Paul wants them not to be the self-appointed judges, but to be selfless servants. Paul did not want the church at Corinth to be filled with all of these self-appointed judgments, judges, because that breeds a type of culture that is cold, that is critical, that is suspicious, and that is judgmental. And that should not be the church of Jesus Christ. Paul says, I want the church of Corinth to be filled with selfless servants because that will breed a type of culture filled with grace and love and peace and meeting each other's needs. And Paul does this, I think, masterfully by holding himself up in verse one and saying, I want you to regard me as a servant of Christ Jesus. Now remember who Paul was. Paul was the church planner. Paul founded this church. He is the leader, right? He's the father of many of their faiths. And yet he's saying, regard me as a servant. What's he doing there? He's not only displaying humility, but he's saying, look, Corinthians, if I, who am the founder of this church, is calling you to consider me a servant, how much more should you be a servant of Christ Jesus and not a self-appointed judge? He's trying to help shape how they are to view their role within the church. Paul also explains that his role was that of a steward, that a steward of the mysteries of God, referring to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Paul didn't own anything. He was just managing everything for his master, Jesus Christ. And I think Paul is, is helping them by talking about servant, talking about being a steward, because the Corinthians were deceived in what kind of role they were to have within the church. But this also led Paul to describing what the main factor for determining success in the Christian life should actually be. Paul talks about this idea of being faithful. Verse two, he says, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. That is the target in the Christian life. And Paul is saying, look, my assignment is not to have worldly success. My assignment is not to be this powerful communicator. My, my assignment is not to be this strategic leader in the eyes of the world. My target, my bullseye is to be faithful. And I love that because I think one of the, the dangers of self-deception is that it confuses the bullseye in the Christian life. It changes the target from being faithful to whatever the world is holding up. And we can apply this as far as being a faithful servant of Christ and what that looks like in the workplace, in the home, in our friendships, and in the church. And so I want to close this morning by just talking a little bit about what it means to be, to be faithful to God as far as the bullseye of our lives. I think biblical success in the Christian life is being faithful by first valuing the small things, valuing the small things. I think that we can become tempted and even deceived 
when we think that success as it relates to faithfulness is mostly about the big things in life, right? The, the big decisions, the, the weighty opportunities. When you are in the spotlight, we can be tempted to think those are the significant moments where I need to be faithful, but not these other smaller areas. The, these are more insignificant. You know, the, those small areas of life, like, like doing the, the, di- the dirty dishes when they're in the sink when no one's watching, right? The small things like responding to your children with patience when they're on your last nerve, right? Responding to a challenging coworker with grace, right? Those, those small things that you and I are, are confronted with maybe dozens of times a day, I think those are the areas of our lives where we can demonstrate true biblical faithfulness that screams louder than some of these big moments in our lives. I think faithfulness focuses on the small things. Not only that, though, but faithfulness also means keeping the long view in mind. Keeping the long view in mind. I think we can become discouraged with hardship, and we can think to ourselves, man, there is no way I can keep doing this day in and day out. Right? We can become overwhelmed with life at times. That can lead us to unfaithfulness because the pressure is too much, the temptation is too strong, the stress is overwhelming, and the tasks are too many, and so on and so forth. And yet, being faithful means having this type of perspective where you're keeping the long view in mind. And that might mean reminding yourself that the season that you're in right now will not last forever. That this season, if it's hard, that too will pass. Or it might be reminding yourself of the ultimate long view of heaven itself. In light of eternity, we're here today and gone tomorrow. And so if you're living in a season of hardship, this may pass or this might be the lot that God has given you for the rest of your life. We don't know. And so reminding yourself of our ultimate home Uh, of being with God in heaven forever and ever, like that helps us to being faithful right now here in the present, even in the midst of hardship. And then thirdly, I think another aspect of faithfulness that can be applied to every area of our life is entrusting the results to God. Entrusting the results to God. Remember what Paul said in chapter three, verses six through eight? He said, Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but who gave the growth? It was God. God gives the growth. God is in charge of the results. We are called to be faithful and to entrust him with the results. It's in his hands. And I don't, I don't know who needs to hear that this morning, but maybe you need to be reminded that it is not your job to control things that you simply cannot control. It's not yours. And and I don't know what that looks like for you in your life, but give the results to God. It's in his hands. You're just called to be faithful, right? Open this grip. Remember the death grip we talked about last week, this white knuckle grip? Open yourself up because he's trustworthy and give him the results. Entrust him with it. Look, mom and dad, as as much as we want to think that we control the salvation of our children, we simply do not. That God is the only one 
that can convert and change our children's hearts. It's the Holy Spirit's work. Look, we're still called to be faithful. We're still called to model before them what it looks like to have this interaction with Jesus, this relationship with Jesus that is compelling, but God is in charge of the results. Look, spouses, it's not your job to control your spouse. You want to be faithful to what the Lord has called you. You want to pray. You want to model grace. You want to aim for growth. But look, if, if they're not a Christian, if they're not acting like a Christian, God has to change their hearts. Look, there are so many areas of our lives where we just simply, we cannot control the results. We cannot ma- manufacture the results. Only God can. Your job is to be faithful. So do not be deceived. Avoid self-deception by these three signs. Be reminded you're called to be a servant of Christ, and the target is faithfulness. Reminded of Jesus' words, I'll close with this. Matthew 25, talking about the story of the talents. He says in verse 21, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter the joy of your master. I love that. Well done, good and faithful servant. He doesn't say well done, good and successful servant. He doesn't say well done, good and admired servant. He doesn't say well done, good and prosperous servant. No, he says well done, good and faithful servant. By God's grace, let each one of us hear those words from Jesus one day. Let's pray together. God, we praise you and we thank you for the grace that you show us each and every day of our lives. Lord, we thank you for the calling that you have upon us, not only to be saved in Christ, but to be servants of Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would give us discernment and wisdom from you, Lord, as far as what it looks like to living in this world. God, we are tempted every single day to want to take on the values of this world. And I I pray, Lord, that you would keep our nose in the book, that you would keep our hearts flooded with your word. God, that you would lead and guide us to being faithful servants of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.